Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. My guest this week is Hasib Kreshi, a managing partner at Dragonfly Capital. From making millions through poker before the age of 21, to going viral for an article on negotiation, to being hired personally by Naval Ravikan to be a crypto VC, Hasib's life could be a Netflix movie. We dive into that backstory and all he's learned about the relationship between work, money, and happiness. We also talk about the Bitcoin ETF, Dragonfly Capital, his biggest miss as a VC, and how he approaches investing today. Please enjoy this fascinating and wide-ranging conversation with Hasib Kreshi. It's a big day, Hasib. Bitcoin ETF just launched on the markets. It's January 11th. I don't know when this episode will come out. It'll probably be several weeks from now. So who knows where we'll be. But based on your position in the crypto world, which we're going to get into today, I just wanted to get your hot take reactions to what does this mean? What do you think about this? Are you for or against it? Does it have any changing of your mind in the world of crypto? The reality is that the Bitcoin ETF, everyone more or less knew that this was coming already priced into the markets. You can see that from the fact that the Bitcoin price didn't really move very much going into the Bitcoin ETF launching. Obviously, it's going to be an on-ramp for institutional capital to find its way into crypto. But to my mind, the more significant thing is it really shows the attitudes towards crypto are changing. And there's just been this deluge of headlines and regulatory wins on behalf of crypto that I think are very difficult to ignore for people who are opponents of the industry. I think the most interesting part of the Bitcoin ETFs is not the day one volume, not which tickers are winning. The thing is, is this good for Bitcoin and what does it mean for the rights of American investors to invest in the assets they want to invest into? And I think Esther Peirce, one of the commissioners of the SEC, when they approved the ETF, said this very well, is what she said is like, look, I'm really excited. I'm celebrating today, but I'm not celebrating for Bitcoin or for Bitcoin ETFs. I'm celebrating for the rights of Americans to buy and sell assets based on their views about those assets. I think seeing even this commission was three to two. It was the two Republican commissioners and Gensler against the two Democratic commissioners, meaning that we were very close to Gensler falling on the other side of the line and these ETPs being rejected. And so I think what this symbolizes for me more than anything is that the winds are changing. The regulatory environment in crypto in the US is different today than it was a year ago in a very substantive way. And I think it's very difficult to ignore the fact that once you approve this, how are you not going to approve an Ether ETF? Once you approve an Ether ETF, how are you not going to say that, okay, well, Ethereum with gas and smart contracts and DeFi and all this stuff that's so central to the story of Ethereum is legitimate under the commodities regulation of the America, 
How are you not going to say the same is true for everything else happening in Web3? It begins this legitimization for the industry that as much as there are the holdouts like Vanguard and Jamie Dimon who are going to say, oh, Bitcoin is just for scammers and frauds and ransomware and all this bullshit. The reality is that you are fighting a losing fight if you're still going to make that argument. And I think that's the main thing in my mind that the ETF really stamps into the conversation. Yeah, I think your top point, I agree with that it's a huge wind change and it's a big day for American capitalism and the court system that there can be people that don't like things, but that if people want to be invested in something or be involved, there's lots of things that I don't think are good investments personally, but it's not my job to prevent people from doing it. They have rights in a capitalistic society to make investments as they see fit. The second point, though, I'm not totally sure I buy into, so I want to dive into that a little bit about the ether, like as if we're going to have a doge with dog hat ETF, technically. It feels like we got here because of Grayscale and Coinbase. Basically, the way I tell people is there's this big wall, and people since the Winklevoss twins have been running into it. Every court case has just got a little bit thinner, and then BlackRock, they just ran right through it at the end, and they were like, okay, the court case, we have to go through it. Let me just push back a little bit on the Ether. Do we need to go through another court case to then prove that Ether is not a security and go through this whole song and dance again every time? Or do you think that the precedent of the Bitcoin ETF actually does open up a Doge ETF or any cryptocurrency? It's a good question. I mean, Doge, many, many steps away from Doge, to be clear. You got to get Ether in first before you can start making that argument, or maybe Litecoin or one of these things that is pretty uncontroversially not a security. I do think Ether is up next, not just liquidity and the demand for it, but also the fact that although there's this big meme of Gary Gensler being extremely evasive about answering the question in front of Congress, is Ether a security or not? The reality is that the SEC has basically conceded that Ether is not under their jurisdiction. Now, why do I say that? The reason why is that we already have an Ethereum futures ETF. The Ethereum futures ETF is regulated by the CFTC. If the SEC believed that Ether was a security, they would be fighting for that jurisdiction. And they would say, no, 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 no. This is a security swap. And therefore, it's under our regulatory regime, not under the CFTC. The fact that the CFTC is regulating this product means that the SEC has already given up jurisdiction over Ether. It's too late to fight that fight now. So... I think it is all but certain. I mean, you can see it. The prediction market on this is basically the Grayscale Trust, ETHE, look at its discount. It went all the way from 50%, the depths of the bear market, to now less than 10%. So people more or less are saying, this is coming up next. There's just no way that this is not going to happen sometime this year. Now, it may not be in a few months. It may be the summer, maybe later in the year. I think for everything beyond that, there's not enough demand for Litecoin or whatever for it to be the next in line. But you can imagine... XRP or Solana or one of these other assets. Now, of course, the SEC is still embroiled in this fight. They still intend to appeal the XRP ruling, and they still believe that Sol is a security. They've said so in their Coinbase suits and Binance suits. However, it's very likely that by the time we get to the Ether ETF, there's going to be turnover in the SEC. We're going into an election year. It's very, very likely that we're going to see new leadership come January next year, in which case, I think that's the most likely scenario in which we see things past Ether have their chance to become ETFs or basically for the SEC to seed the argument and say, you know what, we're going to stop fighting these things. Maybe once upon a time, Solano was a security, just as Ether once upon a time was a security, but it's not today and whatever. We're going to let Wall Street more or less do what they want. What does that do from this ethos of there's this really interesting irony? I come from the minority of 
a trade five background that's interested in crypto. And when you meet crypto people, it's like a world over here. And then the trade five, there's a world over here. And my general thesis was eventually these worlds just had to combine. This wasn't going to go on forever, these two separate universes. But for other people, this is so weird. The decentralized group is praising the centralization of securities trading and exchanges. What impacts do you think that that has on the decentralized ethos that now these assets or securities or investments are in this more centralized traditional world, if any? We don't know yet what the impact is going to be. ETFs becoming big sinks of capital and liquidity. It's possible that one day you may see that the Ether ETF is actually more liquid than the spot. If that does happen, it will have a strange effect on the overall market structure for crypto and the way you might think about crypto assets. The other thing, of course, when you talk about something like Ether, which is, of course, a proof of stake network, what will it mean when all of a sudden BlackRock has more Ether than everyone else combined and thus can, in essence, vote with their money to decide what is the canonical version of the chain? Now, I think we're still a ways away from that being a realistic concern. The ETFs, the Bitcoin people are speculating that there's maybe 50 billion. It's really big numbers people are throwing around how much money could end up in the Bitcoin ETF. I think for Ethereum, it's probably less likely just because of the fact that almost certainly the ETFs are not going to be staking, in which case, one, they're not going to participate in consensus because there's additional risks to participating in consensus. And also there's additional yield. And so you're seeing you know, a lot of people who are on Ethereum who are either staking uh, through, a, through an exchange or they're using something like Lido. And so because of that fact, I think it's unlikely that the ETF is going to be the dominant way that people hold Ether or the dominant way that people interact with Ethereum governance. The pure protocol level concerns, I think, are not huge. Already, there's a lot of money in Coinbase and people don't say, oh, well, you know, crypto is not real because Coinbase has a lot of tokens. The bigger thing, I think, and I think the right way to think about it is that crypto is a substrate that anybody can use to do whatever they want. And the important point of crypto is not that, well, crypto only works if everybody self-custodies and everybody doesn't use exchanges and everybody only stays in DeFi. That's not true. Crypto works in a world where anybody can interact with crypto the way they want. So if you want to interact with crypto through holding an ETF, good on you. You are absolutely free to do that. And the infrastructure is open to Fidelity or to BlackRock or to whoever else who wants to create those products for their customers. But every consumer will always have the ability to self-custody their Bitcoin directly, to interact with the network directly. That is the important difference. As long as everybody has open access, then there's only so much that Vanek can do, only so much that BlackRock can do. Because they can't say, like, we're going to block you from accessing Bitcoin except through us, and we're going to jack up the fees, and now we're going to have these transaction restrictions. Yes, if you hold the ETF, you have to obey the rules, but there's only so much they can do to an asset that is completely open access. And that is the key characteristic of crypto. Not that this much of it is held by crazy people at home who are cypherpunks. That's not what makes crypto crypto. What makes crypto crypto is that it is free for everyone to interact with the network. And I think that property is no less true today than it was yesterday. It's such a nuanced point that even if everyone did that, the fact that you and other people are still going to hold cold wallets and have the same ability, you can't go on the SWIFT network like J.P. Morgan and decide transaction. Even if the average person has no desire to handle that piece, the fact that they could is a really powerful point that I think goes missed at times. Because I think this is one of the problems I see is how tribal people will get about these subjects. The whole thing's going to be ruined. Everyone gets to be so dramatic. Maybe it's just for clout. And the other point you made is also a great one. I can tell you from the bond market, it was surprising to me that 
trading ETFs is more liquid than underlying and traditional assets. If you're a macro fund, you'd rather trade a bond ETF than cash bonds because you can put on a larger liquid trade now. So the ETFs became way more than just a vehicle for retail. It's how large pools of money are able to move stuff around. And so to your point, it wouldn't surprise me if it became more liquid to trade the ETF for. This is what gets large institutions involved is suddenly, if they're interested in something, they could put on several billion dollar trade and take it off and make money without moving the market or being disruptive. It's a very interesting question of whether that will happen for Bitcoin. It's obviously happened in many assets. Gold ETF and obviously bond ETFs are the primary example where it's so much more liquid through the ETF than through any other mechanism. The reality, of course, is that Bitcoin has been very liquid for quite a while. So if you think about assets that already have pretty liquid markets, how much extra liquidity will the ETF add, especially for an asset that's traded internationally? We know that a huge amount of the trading volume of crypto is not in the US. A huge amount of it's in China. A huge amount of it's in Korea and Japan. And so having a BlackRock ETF I don't, I don't know how much impact it's going to have in those markets relative to the U.S. That does make me think that we are likely to continue to have a very liquid global spot market. And the ETF is probably also going to be very liquid, but with the expectation that there's a very different set of traders in that market, the set of traders who are going to be living on Binance or Coinbase or whatever. Yeah, if I had to speculate, I would agree with you that there's always going to be native crypto traders. There is just not a world that I see them leaving for a variety of reasons. And then for the people that did it, who own it outright, for some of the use cases, if you're in a totalitarian regime, you're not logging on to your Fidelity account. You don't have access to a brokerage platform where you could do this. So there's hardcore trading that are offshore and have reasons. Then there's use cases that have reasons. There's different segmentations of the market where I think there'll always be an amount of trading. I think that if the asset class continues to grow into the multi-trillions space, to the extent that institutions are putting on large trades, then there is a world where it happens. And again, this is an interesting one where there's also just a liquidity security. If you look at Ross Stevens at Stone Ridge, his origin story, his hedge fund wants to make a bet. They go to put on a very large trade to make the bet. And they're like, oh, holy shit. Who do I even call to execute this? So people forget, and it's even funny today seeing the two worlds colliding, having sitting at the middle, T plus one settles fast for Wall Street. T plus two was the speed of light for bonds. T plus zero, instantaneous settlement is not something that this entire world is used to. Cold storage, hot wallets, all of the precautions that go in are so unique that for a macro fund to ramp up and do the education research, suddenly you just opened up a vehicle for them to trade, to borrow, to lend against the funding markets. One of the winners is all the trading desks. People just think about the ARB between where can I buy spot Bitcoin and where can I trade the ETF and keeping those markets. A lot of trading with that. But now you can lend Bitcoin ETFs. You can generate yield off of it. There's all sorts of trades. There's going to be an options market. This is just going to create a variety of trading that I think the institutions, the one thing I'd say about Wall Street is they're not partisan at times. They are driven by money-making opportunities. And so you can ban it. You can say, don't do it. But if there's an opportunity to make money, they're going to be there and support those markets. And that's what you're seeing. So it'll be a fun bet. I'll see if it's more liquid to do a, and it will be a large trade if someday the ETF becomes a larger vehicle. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see whether it happens. That was fun. Let's take a step back a little bit because in preparation for learning about you, and the story almost sounds like a Netflix movie. I think an interesting place to start is this, poker Portuguese prodigy story, just because 
it's an interesting story. I appreciate you sharing it because it's kind of a low point in your life that then sets off an amazing career. Also, I always find that I bump into poker people, fantasy people, that there is a pull to crypto. So maybe we can touch upon that too. But why don't you start us with the Portuguese prodigy story? Yeah. So I started playing poker professionally when I was 16 years old. And I ended my career when I was 21. So this is uh, 14 years ago, basically, that this happened. By the time I was 19, I was ranked one of the top 10 online Nolan Hold'em players in the world. Made a lot of money at a young age, dropped out of college, traveled around playing high six poker games. A very non-traditional upbringing. A lot of my education happened inside of a classroom at a poker table. And one of the people I ended up meeting was this guy named Jose, who was known as a Portuguese poker project, very young kid. And me and a buddy of mine ended up taking him under our wing, training him, mentoring him, and helping him move through the world. Basically, the last year that I was a professional poker player at 21, he ended up getting embroiled in a massive cheating scandal. And I defended him and protected him and was dishonest about my relationship with him. I didn't tell people that I had backed him, that I was mentoring him, that I was doing all this stuff because I was scared that if I did, people would think that I had also cheated. And this ended up backfiring, where the entire community turned against me for basically protecting this guy and lying about my relationship with him. That, you know, poker is one of the most trust-based industries that I have ever seen, which might seem a little bit ironic because you might think, oh, poker players are gamblers, they're bluffing with each other and all this stuff. But poker is just one of these places where your word is everything. And it's so easy to cheat in a poker game that the only way that people can really know that you are trustworthy is if you have never, ever, ever cheated before or been dishonest. Just cheating once is enough to basically end your career. That was the reason why I was so afraid. And ironically, my fear was exactly the thing that drove me to be dishonest to the people who I knew and who I respected. I was very young. I was 21 at the time that this happened. And I was basically defenestrated from the community. People thought that I was a scumbag. I was a terrible person. And it destroyed me personally because I had done nothing else ever in my life. I dropped out of school. I let go of any other ambitions I might've had as a young person. I was like, no, no, no. Poker is the one thing I'm good at. It's the one thing I've learned to be really great at. And I decided that I needed to walk away from all of it and figure out who I am and what I care about and what I want my life to be about. It ended up being a many year journey after that. A very tough thing, I think, especially being young, to feel so alone and so unsure of yourself and who you are and what you're supposed to be. It really taught me a lot. And I think it really, ironically, gave me a lot of the resources and faculties mentally and psychologically that led me to become much more effective as a person and as a thinker later in my life. But it was very hard. Eventually, I went back to school and I decided that I wanted to get into the tech industry and do something more productive and less zero-sum with my life. Implicitly, why are there so many poker players who end up finding their way into crypto? Also with fantasy sports. The way that I tell the story is that I think every generation, there is some hustle that if you are smart and crafty and not afraid of looking stupid and not afraid of your parents raising their eyebrows at what you're doing and being a little bit subversive in your career, there's some way that you can push an edge or find some pocket of alpha or capital that is low-hanging fruit that other people are not jumping on yet. And in my generation, when I was coming up, that was poker. And then the alpha and poker went away, and then it became fantasy sports. Then the alpha and fantasy sports went away. And then it became ICOs and crypto trading. And then the alpha there went away. And then it became NFTs. And then that went away. And there will always be 
a hustle. That if you're 14, 15, 16, you're smart, you're hungry, and you're willing to spend your time making friends and being cool in high school, finding some crazy ass way to make money that your parents don't approve of, there will always be that thing. And it changes every few years as the edges get competed away. That's why I think so many people who are poker players find their way to crypto because some people's brains are wired in such a way, they're naturally drawn to that, like moths to a flame. And I think that was in some part true for me. It wasn't completely because when I quit poker, I basically got to the point where I made a lot of money at a young age and I saw a lot of people who had a lot of money at a young age, which is very similar to, I think, what a lot of crypto culture is because you've got all these young guys who are living online, day trading and just talking on Twitter all day and making tons of money. And the thing you notice very quickly as a young person is that almost none of these people seem happy. They're flashing around lots and lots of money. They've got all this prestige. They've got all this swagger and this cultural clout, but it doesn't make them happy. And I think it's severed for me very quickly at a young age, this association that you're taught by the media that money will make you happy. And I realized very quickly that wasn't true. And it wasn't true for me personally. I didn't really care that much about spending money. And so initially I wasn't really very interested in monetary things. A lot of people I knew who are poker players ended up going into trading. It's a very, very common off-ramp actually for poker players, but it just never appealed to me. And it wasn't until many years later, I was working at Airbnb as a software engineer. I found my way into the tech industry, learned how to code. My first full-time engineering job was at Airbnb. And it was there that crypto really clicked. Known about crypto for quite a while. Actually, a lot of my buddies who are poker players were early into Bitcoin because after a lot of the online poker sites got shut down by the US government in 2011, 2012. A lot of people who were playing high stakes poker games moved to starting settling their bets with each other using Bitcoin. And so that was the first time I heard about Bitcoin very, very, very early. And I tried to understand it and I say, okay, what's the big idea? Why is it interesting? And at the time, my perception was that, oh, okay, this is a way for people to settle gambling debts online with people across the world. That makes sense. I don't know how interesting that is, but yeah, I guess you can use Bitcoin or something else to do that. But it wasn't really until Ethereum took off in 2016, 2017, that crypto really started to make sense to me. I was working in payments fraud at Airbnb. Basically, Airbnb pays people in 50 plus countries around the world. And to pay people in all these different places, as a consumer, you swipe a credit card and then magically someone on the other side of the world gets paid. The reality is that there is no international payment system that magically sends money to people. There are many different systems all across the world in different jurisdictions, which are all made in the 70s and 80s, which are all super old. They don't talk to each other natively. They're all really terrible. They close at night, they close on weekends, national holidays, and there's just all this jank in this system that was not designed for the world that we actually live in today. A world that is 24-7, that is digital and international first, where you have these internet-native products that are constantly moving across borders. It's not designed for this world. As an engineer, when you see that, your first instinct is that, oh, we should throw this away and we should start over. We should build a system for the world we actually live in. And I realized that that's what crypto was. Crypto was a bunch of computer scientists and game theorists and philosophers and crazy cypherpunk people who came together and said, knowing what we know today, if you could start over, how would you rebuild a financial system? How would you rebuild money? Well, maybe you would make it peer-to-peer -peer instead of centralized. Maybe you'd make the algorithmic monetary policy instead of discretionary monetary policy. Maybe you'd make it programmable. All these different features that each of these cryptocurrencies was proposing and experimenting with 
were all different answers to the question of how would you rebuild money today if you had a blank slate? And what struck me, it was ultimately made me leave traditional tech and come into crypto full time, was that it's not that I believe that we're all going to be paying each other in Bitcoin in 10 years. I don't think that's true. I think that's crazy. But rather that the way that we think about money 50 years in the future is not going to be the way we thought about money 50 years ago. In 1973 versus 2073, we are going to have totally different ways of thinking about money and value. And what happens here in this industry, in crypto, is absolutely going to change the trajectory of how humans think about money. And that's what made me convinced that this stuff was going to change the world. Before I get into the future of money and crypto, when you were talking about the wealth you experienced in your poker life and how that compares to this crypto young wealth, how much of that is a frequency that the wealth was earned really rapidly versus wealth itself? If you had earned that money over a longer arc, do you think it matters? Or is it simply that you just got to speed run the video game? Once you make a lot of money, it doesn't matter if it takes 20 years or if it takes two months. Once you achieve it, you just get let down that it wasn't the thing you were chasing. Right, that I think there's more of a feeling of earnedness if that money comes to you gradually over time through hard work and through delivering social value. The reality is as a poker player, what you're doing is not valuable to the world. In fact, it's probably negative sum instead of positive sum or zero sum. Not just because as a poker player, there's a rake. And so the casino is taking some money and then everything less than that is getting shuffled around the table. But even more so, the way that I thought about it, and this is something that I struggled with as a poker player, was that when I sit down with somebody, who do I want to be playing against? I want to be playing against a doctor or a dentist, somebody who's just not a serious poker player, just coming here to gamble and play around. And as a poker player, one of the most important skills is what's called game selection, which is making sure you're playing against bad players and not good players. Most obviously in the world, same thing with a trader. A trader, you want to be in a juicy market. You don't want to be just trading against other sharks. So as a poker player, my job is to go find the dentists of the world who are spending their lives doing useful things for people like fixing their fucking teeth so they can come to a poker table and lose their money to me who has been doing nothing other than getting good at a card game. In just a very real sense, it is a purely parasitical relationship in a way that's obvious to you because you see the guy, you see the dentist. Whereas when you're trading, it's like, okay, maybe I'm making money from retail people. Maybe not. Maybe I'm making money from some other sophisticated guy. You don't know. But in poker, you see it in front of you and you express it through your own choices as a poker player. And I think this is part of why it is easy to get disillusioned as a poker player and not feel that connection of, I am making this money because I'm doing something valuable. I'm making this money because I'm winning at this competition of being better at this very arbitrary skill of playing this esoteric card game better than people who are just playing for fun and have real jobs. The other thing about it that makes it difficult is that a lot of what makes money come alongside meaning is the way in which you earn that money and the way in which society treats you for the accumulation of that capital. Another reason why I think somebody who, for example, starts a company and ends up becoming very successful and building a big enterprise, I think although they may end up having the same level of wealth as somebody who makes all their money trading or winning the lottery, they don't have the same social affiliations. Somebody who starts a company, they feel themselves creating something valuable, hiring people, mentoring people, like doing all this stuff that's incredibly pro-social. And those social relationships are manifested by, okay, you also end up accumulating wealth because of your success. Whereas people who are accumulating wealth in this vacuum, they're playing this very myopic game, no one else quite sees them, they don't share any of this information with anybody. And it's like, they see themselves secretly gaining more and more wealth. 
I think a lot of the things that traditionally make wealth feel nourishing to human beings is also the social associations, that you're doing something valuable for society and society is rewarding you and giving you this premature that human beings intrinsically value. At the end of the day, human beings are much more social than we are mathematical. And so just looking at a number in your bank account means fucking nothing. The thing that you really experience as a human being is how other people feel about you and perceive you and are rewarding you for what you're doing for everyone else. And I think when you have ways of earning wealth that break that connection, like with trading, like with poker, like with winning the lottery, I think that's when you see this huge disconnect where people who have a lot of money are less happy than they were even before they had the money. I know a lot of people on Wall Street that have a lot of money and aren't happy. They'd probably be less happy if they had less money. But I've also met a lot of people in crypto who are just disillusioned and a lot of young people. And I do think that's two part. One is that the money that itself they thought was an end state that now they have all this money, what are they going to do with it? But all their friends have jobs or they're not sitting in front of a computer. And then I think that second point is the one that hits people pretty hard of like, what the hell am I doing? Like I traded a monkey for a coin that got me a staking yield. The actual activity <laughs> seems so foolish, almost makes the real anti-crypto argument. And by the way, I'm going to say for crypto, because that's what we're going to talk about, your area of expertise, but you can extend this to finance too. And people do ask this question, like, we're just moving a bunch of money around. Sometimes why you see these billionaire hedge funds are philanthropic or doing stuff later in their life because they're trying to earn that social good back. Oh, I have billions of dollars from trading little pieces of paper, but I'm building hospitals and donating money to colleges and putting my name on buildings to run it back. When that disillusionment from the activity in crypto, you do meet very passionate people that don't have this. And I do think it probably tends on the trading side where you see the made the fast money and just feel in a very negative state. I'm curious if you've seen other parallels in this space or different personality types. Look, I'm a venture capitalist. So I back early stage companies, I back founders. And crypto is one of the places where there's so much startup activity. It's so intrinsically entrepreneurial because everything that is important in crypto was started by somebody who had an idea. Nothing in crypto, short of the ETFs basically, has ever been won by a big company. Everything in the space, whether it's Coinbase, whether it's Ethereum, Solana, everything was a startup. Everything was just some guy with an idea who raised some money. And it's incredibly welcoming and nurturing of that kind of activity. And I think it is in a way also the most pro-social and the most validating paths to end up accumulating wealth in crypto in particular. Because when you start something, think about somebody like Vitalik, obviously he's very, very wealthy from just owning a lot of Ethereum from the very early days. Many of the other Ethereum co-founders are far wealthier than he is, but he's a perfectly happy guy. You can tell he doesn't spend a lot of money. And I think the reason why somebody like Vitalik maybe feels a level of self-satisfaction that somebody who maybe rivals him in wealth, but is a day trader sitting in their pajamas buying dog coins, why Vitalik feels a level of satisfaction is not because of how much money he has and not even because of the way in which he made the money, but rather because of his place in this culture, in this society that's been developed around crypto. The thing about finance, I think, is that despite the fact that, yes, there's an element, if you really look closely at what am I doing of day trading ETFs and arbitraging bond prices or whatever the hell I'm doing, it's really quite shallow. I'm not really sure what value this has for society. I can maybe make an argument that it does, but I can also make an argument it doesn't. But the thing is that there is enough of a reified culture there that if you're good at it, people respect you and they look up to you and you go to dinners and you're celebrated. People say, look at all the stuff that this person has done for 
this firm or for the culture or for advancing Wall Street or for blah, blah, blah. Enough there. For a lot of these people who are making money in crypto, they are in their physical lives. They're isolated. They're doing this. I was talking to a guy the other day who just lives basically in Montana and he has a shitload of money, owns a lot of properties, made a lot of money, very unhappy person. And that seems much more common in that world because people don't trade crypto on teams. Obviously, there are some places, if you go to some place like Jump or one of these big trading firms, I think actually you see the people that are a lot happier than people who are trading their own book and even making much more money than them, but are isolated and just floating through space without any real social or status connection that they can hold on to about what they're doing. So human beings ultimately were social animals. And I think that it's true in almost every one of these domains is that the closer you are to people, the happier you're going to be and the more purchase you're going to have over the fruits of your labor. I know a lot of other poker players who found their way into crypto. Most of them are traders. And crypto naturally has this on-ramp to trading as a way to express your skills and learn how to interact with the low-hanging fruit or the edges you can have in crypto. But I'm a VC. The thing that I noticed very quickly is that VCs are a lot happier than traders. Now, they don't make as much money in the short term. Traders, very fast liquidity, very fast money. VC is a get-rich-slow game because it takes a long time to actually liquidate your investments and to end up getting the carry checks. It takes many, many years, five, six, seven, 10 years to end up actually making real money. But everything that you do is social. Everything that you do is about helping people. It's about helping a founder, helping their team or their company or solving a problem or just talking to people and sharing information and building relationships. That is what you're doing all day. And I realized how different my lived experience is from people who are maybe as successful in the trading domain as I am, but just how different my day-to-day experience is. My experience every day is not staring at charts and trying to fuck over other people, which in large part is what a lot of trade job is. And keeping everything secret and not talking to anybody and not sharing ideas or information because I don't want to be dropping alpha to our competitors. That is not at all what a VC is like. And VC say more or less everything. You just talk in public, you talk your book, you talk about what's great about the founders that you've backed, you help them out, you advise them through their moments of darkness, you help support them, you help celebrate their wins. That's what you do as a VC. And so in many ways, I found that it is in some way the healthiest way to engage in what's otherwise a very harrowing industry to live through. I don't disagree with you. I'm curious to push on the VC side. Capital is not hard to come by anymore. These founders can talk to all sorts of VCs and raise money from all sorts of areas. And as zero sum as Wall Street or poker games are, I've come to appreciate the positive sum games or the games that you want to play, that there is something, especially as a kid, I wish that I was taught the difference between the two. That being said, there's things that look like positive sum, but at their base are still zero sum. They're only raising $30 million. The founder has to pick someone. There's a level of competitiveness. And there's these things where that the zero sums, I don't know how the right way to describe it, but have an honesty, if that makes sense. At a poker table, I know no one's trying to be my friend. When I'm trading, I know the rules of the game. In VC, the pro-social, I'm helping, I see how that is possible. But I also wonder sometimes the ones that look positive some, to me, maybe I'm just a cynical person. I, I don't think I am. <laughs> there's a secret zero something underneath it. Well, there's just a secret underlying it. These VCs are constantly competing for Midas list and I'm the best and I'm the biggest and you want to be in the deal and you want to box everybody else out. And so how do you convince people? It's not by hauling everyone up and saying, I'm a nice guy. So tell me more about that side of the VC game. No, you're absolutely right, is that there's competition. Now, competition is not the same as saying it's zero-sum. 
Those are two very different things. The economy has a lot of competition. That does not mean the economy is zero sum. Competition simply means that we are competing to be the best. Now, if we're competing to be the best, that means that the way we win is by actually being better. Now, there are some ways where you can compete by hamstring your opponents or lying about other VCs and say, oh, this person fucked over this other guy and you're making up the story. You could do that, but it'll catch up to you pretty fucking quick. The real way that VCs end up competing with each other is by being more trustworthy, being more reliable, having better services, actually adding more value. And the people who lie about it or the people who make up bullshit, it eventually catches up to them. Sometimes you can win. And every cycle, you're going to see some VC that emerges that basically has some kind of shallow strategy. I mean, I think a lot about research, the investment arm of FTX. Back in the day before FTX started FTX Ventures, their investment arm was Alameda Research, which was originally the market-making firm. Alameda Research basically was one of the most active VC investors. Once FTX got big, they wrote tons and tons of checks. We would see them everywhere in almost every single round. And they were so bad. They did absolutely nothing. They would dump your token the moment that they got it, the moment they could. They were just pure bad actors as far as VCs go. They're really negative value on a cap table. But the brand of FTX was so strong that they would just dangle to say, oh, we'll list you, we'll like do this stuff for you. And they would never deliver on any of it. And eventually caught up to them. Eventually founders figured out that like, hey, actually Alameda is an anti-pattern. It's an anti-signal on your cap table, not a benefit. And that's why eventually FTX shuffled their investment arm from Alameda to FTX Ventures. They say, oh, now it's FTX Ventures, brand new name, it's clean, and we have different people running it, but it's all the exact same people and the exact same money. And so for a short time, this kind of strategy can work, but eventually reputation will catch up to you and you're going to start losing. And we see it every single cycle. So I do think at the end of the day, as a VC, you're absolutely right that I'm competing to get on the best founders cap table. I'm competing to see things the earliest. But the way that I win is by actually being good, is by actually having the people I work with in the past say, you really want to work with a seed. He's fucking awesome. And have those people who said that about me themselves be successful, which obviously as a VC, there's only so much I can do. I can't run your company, but I can have some small part to play in pushing you forward. The skills that I have, the connections that I have, the abilities that I have. And that for any individual company, it's a small thing. There's only so much that investors can do. And investors are kind of in the business of overselling what they can do. And that's one place where I try to be honest, just because I think for most founders, they find it refreshing to be honest and candid about what investors actually can and can't do. But I think if you can make a promise and deliver it, that's ultimately the thing that people will end up saying about you, is that this person said they were going to do X, they did it. And in the moments that I needed him, he stepped up to the plate. Yeah. I think that as a founder with VCs, there's definitely a part of founders by their nature believe they can build something. The ones that I've invested in and being on myself, you're not looking for answers, but when you need something, you're hoping the people are there. That's when the chips hit the road, not the fancy swag or meetings. That stuff's nice and a perk, whatever. But if something bad happens and I say, I need you, are you there? I think one part about the VC world that I've learned, and I think this is charitable and business theme this week on a lot of the shows has been how much of a relationship business it is. And you coming out of this hoker, abandonment, walk in the woods, figure out what you want to do, Airbnb, before the Airbnb move, and I think it's just something that happened that I think people will be fascinated by is you got found in your career by some really big, successful people. It doesn't seem like you went out looking for them or cold calling and saying, can I just meet with you for five minutes? I just need to learn about how to be successful. (laughs) I think Sabin just quit and he had a great quote, which I'm going to mess up is like, everybody wants to be the beast, but nobody wants to do the work. 
I think it got butchered, but the whole point was everyone wants to be, how do you become Nick Steven? I think his answer is you work your fucking ass off. And that's not what people want to hear. They want that five minute, I had lunch with the CEO and he told me what to do. And so the reason why that is important to me is your career, you got found by some of your writing. And the reason why I'm so fascinated by it is before we got out, we were talking about this. As we were doing our prep, I was like, oh shit, he's the guy that wrote that thread that went mega viral. But it seems that you putting your ideas into the world has created a network universe for you that has nothing to do with your poker, your background. A person was over here operating in a world, stuff went bad. A lot of people just could have been like, that's it, stayed in a depressed state. You then reinvent yourself on a completely different planet. It comes back to this writing moment. So I'm curious, when you wrote those pieces and the reaction that the world caught, and then how that ended up leading to Azure Network started to expand. Poker is very similar to trading in a lot of ways. Most people don't share very much about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And this was an instinct that I never quite developed when I was a poker player. And many people criticized me because I used to do a lot of teaching. I would write a lot about poker strategy and different ideas and techniques and theories that I was playing around with. And most poker players thought that was fucking stupid. You know, it's like, why are you giving away all this alpha? Why are you making the games harder? You're actually making things worse for yourself, but also for us by sharing a lot of this information and helping people get better. And the thing that I just have this very deep instinct for is that, yeah, that may be true in some narrow sense, but it ends up making me so much better to put my ideas down into writing and to have them be challenged by the people who read them. But I just learned at a very young age that the way that I end up getting ahead is by constantly subjecting myself to the scrutiny of people who are smarter than me. And that's what writing is about. Writing is about releasing yourself on the world, helping people who read it, but also subjecting yourself to the scrutiny and critique of people who are better than you or smarter than you or who have some different angle on this material than you. So I've just been doing that all my life. I learned it as a poker player. And it's just a habit that's continued for me for a very long time. I ended up writing a piece about negotiation after I got my first job. I ended up writing a blog post about it. It was more of an experience of getting my first job as a software engineer at a time when I had no credentials. I had studied liberal arts at a state school after I went back to university. My resume looked dog shit, former poker player who dropped out of school, eventually finished with some useless degree, and then like, oh, I can code now. And it's like, yeah, whatever, sure you can. And so I had a really tough job hunt. I applied to 30 plus companies, didn't get any of them, and then ended up eventually going through the side door. I ended up with eight offers. I got offered from YouTube and from Uber and from Twitch, and I ended up taking the job offer at Airbnb. Wrote a blog post about it, basically saying absolutely everything that happened. Explain what you just said, because you couldn't get in, but then how did you get in the side door? Yeah, so the way I originally applied, it was 30 plus companies that I got rejected from without even a phone screen, a callback, an email, nothing. Wrote up my resume, very dutifully followed the process and sent in my applications and nothing. So I started saying, okay, I know that if you just get me in a room, you give me a coding problem, I can show you that I can code, but you got to believe me that I can. And clearly none of these people, the processes that I'm going through are not designed for anything to believe me. And so there were two things that I went through simultaneously. One is that I canvassed my network and I found everybody I knew who worked at a tech company that was sufficiently big, regardless of whether they were engineers. So a lot of the people who ended up referring me to these tech companies were salespeople and support people. They have no insight into whether I'm an engineer, but they have internal systems and referral systems. They say, this person is a great engineer. You didn't write that. They'll fucking interview you because they're just so desperate for talent. They think, okay, this person's Silicon Valley. This guy's a good engineer. All right, whatever. Let's talk to him. And so that's how I first started getting interviews. And once I started getting interviews, even though they weren't at great companies, once I started getting interviews, 
Well, the phone screens turned into onsites and the onsites eventually turned into offers. And then once I got offers, I could then take that to the big companies, the Ubers and the Twitches and say, look, I have two offers. I know that you guys didn't want to talk to me, but I've got this type timeline, but I'd love to talk and see if there's something we can do. And I magically got unrejected from five or six companies that then took me through the processes and eventually gave me offers. And so this whole process I wrote about, I also wrote about literally how much money I was offered and how those offers went up in value as I was negotiating. And this story went mega viral. I didn't really realize I was doing something that was that controversial or risque. I thought like, oh, I'm just talking about my life. Like what else do people do in their blogs? So I wrote the story about it. It ended up going viral, Business Insider and BuzzFeed, and it just went totally nuts. And I realized that, wow, people are not transparent about what happens in Silicon Valley or in job hunts. They just don't talk about it. Are you serious? Are you telling me you didn't know this? I feel like if you ask people what they make, it's might as well ask them to get naked in front of you. It's just something you don't talk about. (laughs) Look, I came from the poker world. In poker, everyone talks about what they make. We're all out there playing cards and comparing our dicks with each other. That's all we do is talk about how much we make. Well, a lot of humans do. They just find, got a Twitter thing about this today. They just do it less directly. They wear clothes. They use words about where they go. They communicate that, but they do not say the number. That's like gauche to them. You can't do that. Yeah, look, I was an outsider. I didn't know any of these. I didn't understand how deep this taboo was that I was breaking because I was reading this other blog post that was really helpful to me. The guy just laid out, here's what my offers were, here's how much I made. And I'm like, how can you even give anyone advice if you can't just say what it looks like? If everyone has to just imagine what numbers are and what they're supposed to do, it feels like such a horrible way to teach anyone anything is, yeah, let's all be completely secretive and not tell anyone any of the important details and just say, I got a job at Google and I'm great and Google's great. And it's like, no, what? Anyway, obviously I ended up ruffling a lot of feathers, both in the tech industry and at Airbnb in particular. That's a whole nother story. But when I realized how huge of a story this was, just because of the fact that so few people are transparent about this process, I realized that one of the things that people were amazed was really by the numbers and the offers and whatever. But one of the things that they were amazed by was that I negotiated. And I was like, that's what's amazing is that I negotiated. What about the fact that like I came from a you know, poker player and I had no background, or whatever. But people were just like, I can't believe you negotiated. That's crazy. And I'm like, that's not crazy. That's an obvious thing that you would do. And as a poker player, like the idea of negotiating just comes very naturally. And so I just wrote a blog post like, here's how I negotiated. If you want to negotiate like me, here's you should do. And that blog post is the one you're referring to, which is this follow-up, a step-by-step guide to negotiating a job offer. This is 10 years ago. People still message me about that blog post saying like, oh, I followed your job advice. I got a raise and it's so great. Thank you for posting this. I even had people at my company bring up this blog. Your blog post says for me to do this, so I'm not going to tell you my blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so I'm like, all right, you know, fair enough. Ironically, on an individual basis, it might be one of the most impactful things that I've done is just writing that blog post which I know tens of thousands of people have used it for negotiating their own job offers. That's a great example of positive sum. The fact that it helped other people learn in that way, it was wild. I was like, oh my God, he's the guy. Let's go back on, you're in crypto, you're at Airbnb, you're obvious of the payment system, you go on to stable coins, but then how do you and Naval end up getting together? Basically, I left Airbnb. I worked for a little while at a company called 21, which got acquired by Coinbase. That was a company founded by Balaji Srinivasan, who's now a brilliant, crazy online person. His company ended up getting acquired by Coinbase. He, I think he subscribes to that. Then me and a buddy of mine started working on startup ideas, and we landed at this idea to build a centralized stablecoin to take on Tether. 
And we were shopping around to different exchanges because we needed an exchange to partner with us in order for this idea to work. And we ended up having a number of acquisition offers. Originally, the context in which I met Naval was that I was connected to him by Abology to ask him advice about how to navigate this process of talking to exchanges. And he was obviously a very early crypto investor. He knew the exchange founders very, very well. And when I went to Naval and I said, hey, we've got startup, people have told me that you're great, you know, you're a guru, you know, you've got all this wisdom to share about how to navigate startup acquisitions or whatever. And he was like, oh, you don't want to get absorbed by some big tech company and you know, some exchange. Your life is going to be run by the legal department. You don't want that. And I was like, are you sure? I actually do really want that. Sounds great. <laughs> and he was like, no, 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 no. You should be an investor. And I was like, I should be an investor. I don't know anything about investing. I barely invest my own money. I just put myself in the S&P and like, don't look at it. I have no insight into investing. I have no financial training. I have nothing. And he's like, oh, that stuff is easy. Don't worry about that. That stuff you can learn. Open a textbook and you can learn that stuff. The thing that's hard, especially in crypto investing, is judgment. If you don't have good judgment, no amount of book learning is going to teach you how to get there. But if you have good judgment, the rest of this stuff is simple and I can teach you it. But if you want to get the best seat in the house to see what happens in the industry, to see what happens to crypto, what happens to Bitcoin, what happens to layer ones and to layer twos and to DeFi and all these things, the best way to do that is to become an investor. And so he ended up inviting me and my co-founder to join the fund that he was running called Metastable Capital as GPs. And so we ended up shelving the startup, coming to Metastable and working with Naval. And that was how I got my start as an investor. What do you think it was that he saw in you where he was able to do your judgment? Because it strikes a chord with me. My mentor said that, like that great investors, it's judgment. And you can only see it over time when the light's on you, something bad happens. What's your judgment in these moments that people look great when everything's fine, but when stuff goes bad, that's when you see it. What was it, do you think, that Naval was able to size you up and decide that you had good judgment? That's a great question. And I still don't think I totally know the answer to that. I think for Naval, he's a very intuitive person. And I think a lot of it was just him talking to me and seeing my energy, my drive, my hunger. The fact that I'd ramped up very quickly on crypto from a state of knowing almost nothing six months ago. Back then, crypto was a lot less developed than it is today. So there was, in some sense, less to learn. But there was also a lot of surface area to try to get a grasp on. And the other element of it is that I think Naval really respected the fact that I had navigated through so many different spaces from poker to software engineering and then into crypto, and that I sort of had a nose for opportunity. I think he saw that and he found that to be impressive. But in truth, I had much less confidence in myself at that time. It really struck me that he had so much confidence in me. I owe him a huge debt of gratitude for giving me the confidence to believe that I could do something like this because I don't know anything about finance. I don't know anything about investing. I don't know anything about trading. I don't know anything about any of these things. And it's funny, the very first week that I joined Metastable, Naval wanted me to help out. They were just going through registration, which is registering with the SEC. It's like a whole process. Oh boy. Super operational complexity. And of course, I knew nothing about any of this stuff, but he was like, oh, you're smart. You'll figure it out. And so the very first week, I remember I dutifully bought this book on hedge fund compliance to try to understand what the hell's going on. I remember I took a picture of the book to just show him, look, I'm working hard. I'm reading this book. The other book I bought, which is right next to it, was Hedge Funds for Dummies, which was not in frame. <laughs> I didn't know what carry was. I didn't know what a limited partner was. So many basic things. I had no idea and I had to teach myself. But he, in the end, was right that in his instinct, 
that if he just led me to the fire hose, I was going to keep drinking or die of just stomach expansion, basically. That was what I set myself to. And so you're working for him at his crypto venture capital fund. What is the impetus that then makes you spin off and go start Dragonfly? There was two elements of it. So Metastable was technically a hedge fund, but they were doing venture investments out of a hedge fund vehicle, which was an old school structure. People don't really do that anymore. Now it's kind of more traditional venture funds. But back in the day, a lot of people did these hybrid structures. One of the things that really frustrated me about Metastable was that I realized very quickly that they were quite risk averse in a way that I was not expecting. They didn't really want to rock the boat. I remember at the time the ICO bubble was collapsing and I really believed that we should get out of Ether. I thought that Ether was going to completely deflate. Ether at that time didn't really have enough use cases or a floor of demand. It was essentially the reserve currency of ICOs. And once ICOs went away, demand for Ether was going to evaporate. And I was right about that. This is in the summer when Ether had come down from 1,200 to 500. And I really strongly advocated that we get out of Ether entirely. And you know, people bought the argument, but they were just like, we do this. And if we're wrong, people are going to blame us. And I'm like, what kind of argument is that? Yeah, of course, people are going to blame you if you make a decision and it turns out to be wrong. That doesn't mean you shouldn't use your judgment to try to make the best decision. There were a lot of things like that built up over time of me wanting to make a big call or write a big check and be aggressive. Like, hey, we like this thing. Let's go hard into it. And the other folks in the team, they didn't agree. They felt it was too risky or they would expose themselves to too much blame if things went wrong. We made some amazing seed investments at the time that I was there. You know, we seeded Avalanche. We seeded Near Protocol. All these situations, I wanted to write bigger checks, but there was just too much pushback internally to write larger checks than we did. Retrospectively, had, it would have been absolutely incredible blockbuster outcomes. They were very, very good, but they would have, instead of turning the fund, it would have two, three X returned the fund, which is just enormous, enormous, enormous lost value in not being more aggressive on those deals. But the second thing I realized was that the people on the team, they were just at a very different phase in their lives. Been doing this for quite a while. Medicine was one of the oldest funds in crypto. It was founded in 2013. So they've been doing this already for like four or five years. And I realized that their ambition level and their energy levels were not the same as mine. At one point, there was a conversation that wanted us to launch a new product and like start expanding our ground game. At the time, the most well-known fund in crypto was Polychain. And Polychain, we really saw as our competitors. They were, they were the guys to beat. And the one thing you saw about Polychain is that they're very, very expansive. They were launching all these different things. They were really growing their teams. They were doing all this stuff. And I was like, we should be doing that. Why aren't we doing a full court press? And the answer I got, which really stuck with me, one of the partners told me, we brought you in so that we could do less work, not more work. <laughs> that really stuck with me. It made me convinced that I never wanted to work again with people who did not share my level of ambition. And that was a lot of what ended up leading me to leave Metastable and eventually partner up with my now co-managing partner, Bo, and building out what is today Dragonfly. And how did you guys come together? What is your vision as you were launching Dragonfly? Bo is a very storied Chinese venture capitalist. He's a legend in China. He's very well known. Anybody who is invested in the Web 1, Web 2 eras in China, you can sort of think of him almost like the Chris Dixon of crypto in China where he was the first mainstream investor to throw his hat in the ring and bet his career in a very public way on the success of crypto. He led the seed round of OKX, which of course at the time was the largest exchange in China. Eventually Binance overtook them, but now they're the number two exchange in the world. He sat on their board. He's very, very closely connected to the first generation of crypto founders who came out of Asia. I first met him because he was a big LP in medicine. He and I built a relationship and we got to know each other and shared a lot of ideas. The vision for Dragonfly that he pitched to me was very different than any other fund that I'd heard of which was that new intellectually that Asia was important in crypto. 
everyone knows that, oh, there's a lot of trading volume, there's a lot of users, there's a lot of stuff. It's just a stat in most people's heads. At the time, I had never actually been to China in my entire life. Actually, at that time, I'd never met a miner. I knew that mining was important. I understood what mining was, but I never actually met one. And I didn't think it was that important to meet one. It just never occurred to me as something I should do to understand the supply side of crypto. I'd never met an exchange founder besides Coinbase. Met Brian Armstrong, but I never met Brian. Coinbase is a very small percent of the global spot market for crypto. Most of it is happening overseas. I never met any of those people. This is something that Bo once told me, which really affected me, which is that crypto is a global phenomenon. And when you say it's a global phenomenon, what that means is that this stuff is happening everywhere in the world. Obviously, most of it's happening outside the US. If you want to understand an elephant, you have to be able to see the whole thing. Like the, the old parable of the blind man and the elephant. In a way, in the US, we only see the trunk. And we don't really have a good sense of what's happening in emerging markets, what's happening in Asia, what's happening with capital flight in different countries, what's happening with mining, what's happening with exchanges. And our view was that if you take seriously the idea that crypto is global, then why is there nobody who's trying to actually take a global view of what's happening in crypto? I couldn't argue against it. I was working at a fund that was quintessential Silicon Valley fund. A Metasable, when we saw a deal from Asia, it went straight from our desk into the trash can. We were just like, this is obviously stupid. This is a scam. I don't know. I can't underwrite it, whatever. Who cares? I only need to look at stuff coming out of the US. And now seeing that myopia just seems crazy to me because in retrospect, we see like all the biggest companies in the world in crypto are in Asia, right? That's where all the money's being. What percentage of your portfolio companies are US-based versus Asian-based versus other countries? There's still a lot of companies that are US-based. And the majority of my time I spend in the States. And we've got other partners who are in the States. We've got a big office in Singapore as well, which is now the center of gravity for crypto in Asia. It varies over the years. So you know, early on, we had a lot more investments into Asian companies. I think in the last year or so, we've actually mostly invested outside of Asia. Asia has just been very quiet relative to what's been going on in the West. I think in bull markets, that tends to revert. Bull markets tend to see a lot more activity happening in Asia, especially over the last couple of years, there's been a lot more capital constrained. So I think it waxes and wanes. But our men data dragonfly beyond just investing in Asia is that we try to invest in the best opportunities worldwide. That's the idea. We don't have a mandate of saying, oh, okay, we're going to do 30 or 40% here, or 20% there or whatever. We don't really care about that. What we care is that the best opportunities might show up in places you don't expect because crypto is a global phenomenon. So that's one pillar of what we're about. The second thing is that we try to be very, very grounds up technology first and research driven. So more than half of our team is technical. I'm obviously was a software engineer. I understand the technology at a very deep level. And we try to approach this stuff from first principles, where instead of employing people who purely are on the finance side, or almost nobody at Dragonfly previously worked in venture. Almost everybody at our firm is crypto native or came from the software side or the research side. It's in a way the same instinct of the thing that Naval taught me, which is that the number one thing we look for is judgment. And sometimes people who are great at judgment are already working at VC firms. But what's the chance that this person with the best judgment that's most attuned to what's important in crypto also happens to work at Tesla or whatever? But I think it's a lot more likely, especially given the aperture of crypto and how many different kinds of people it attracts and the kinds of startups that they have to underwrite, that the best people for the job are going to be people who are working in Web2 consumer BTC startups or whatever. I don't discount it, but... Most of the time, I think the people who end up becoming really great in this industry come from weird places. And we very much embrace that in building our team. When you play this global game, I'm curious how many of the founders are playing this expatriate game where do you find that there's a lot of founders in other jurisdictions because of where we started with global regulation? Or it just happens that when you find a team in Singapore, they grew up in Singapore, they just happen to be there. How many people are moving around 
to follow whatever crypto company and actually actually move countries? Oh, a huge amount. So if you remember in the last cycle, in the ICO cycle, uh, 2017 cycle, you had all these people going from the US to Switzerland to launch their ICOs. People have been doing this forever. Today, the three largest cities in the world for crypto are probably number one, New York City, number two, Singapore, number three, Dubai. And New York is a little bit of the outliers, the energy and the dynamism of America that ends up having New York be this outsized player, even though US crypto regulation, or I should say enforcement, has been the most inimical to the crypto industry. But nevertheless, there are a lot of founders there and there's a lot of energy and culture that has developed there. If you look at Singapore, a lot of the reason why Singapore is so vibrant is not because a bunch of Singaporeans grew up and decided to start crypto companies. Singapore is a very small local population. It's rather that Singapore has become the new Hong Kong. It's become this new legal, regulatory, and financial haven in Asia, where Chinese founders, Southeast Asian founders, Japanese founders, they end up coming here to start companies because of the fact that there's this open and permissive governmental stance towards crypto from a government that's also well-respected and has very safe, very strong rule of law. And the same thing is true of Dubai. So if you look at Dubai, is the exact same exhaust valve for India and for the Middle East. If you want to start a crypto company from any of those regions, India, there's crazy tax laws, the central bank is trying to bang on crypto as hard as they can. And so the founders end up going from there to Dubai. It has that international and open, permissive stance that allows entrepreneurs to actually build things. And so I think you're seeing this all over the place. Same thing is happening now with London, where Rishi Sunak has stated, oh, I want London to be a capital for Web3 innovation. More and more, I think you're going to see the concentration of these havens, unless the US really turns around and starts rationalizing its crypto policy. I'm not hopeful that's going to happen while Gensler is in office, but one way or another, crypto founders are going to find a way to build stuff and to create value for this ecosystem. And so it's only a question of where they're going to do it. How big is Dragonfly today? Can you share size range? Yeah, in terms of AUM, we're in the neighborhood of a couple billion. In terms of people, we're between 40 and 45. So we've grown quite a bit, especially in terms of people, but we're also fairly international, so we have people strewn across the world. Do you guys end up buying Metastable? Yes, I can't speak to the specifics of the transaction. There's all this stuff that I'm bound to, so I can't disclose too much, but more or less, we now run Metastable. Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting when someone starts at a company to learn and then starts a new company and acquires the place they started. That is not the normal process. It is not normal. It is not normal. It was a very meaningful turn of events for me personally because it was where I started and a relationship with Naval was the thing that catapulted me into this whole industry, into this whole line of work. And so fortunately, I can't share too much about it, but it's been awesome to have Metastable come into the fold of Dragonfly, join the family of what we're building here. And so when you think about structure, is Metastable fully absorbed or are they a separate entity? I'm more interested in how you think about structure, allocation of risk, are there partners? Tell me more about how Dragonfly allocates capital. Yeah, so Metastable is fully run by Dragonfly. Basically, there were no employees or anything retained from the previous team. It's all run by us. In terms of partners, we have four partners, two managing partners, myself and Bo, and then two other partners, Tom and Rob. And each of us cover different sectors. So we have our own specialties, but we're also all generalists in that we all have the ability to underwrite any deal. It's part of the crypto industry. We try to keep the organization pretty flat. And I think that's, to my mind, it's pretty fundamental to being good at crypto is that you can't be too hierarchical. And you also have to be able to elevate newer voices and especially younger voices. One of the things you learn very quickly about crypto is that you become a dinosaur really fast. 
I remember it was 2021, NFTs really started booming in a way that I was like, okay, these things are clearly a bubble. Like none of this stuff isn't going to have any staying power. Why are people going to keep trading pictures of monkeys? And it took me about four months to really come to terms with the fact that I'm just not going to get it. And I need to shut the fuck up and to listen to the people who are younger than me. I've already aged out of being able to understand the vanguard of what's happening in crypto. And it's funny because I saw this happening to the guys at Metastable who were there before me who didn't understand ICOs. And I came into ICOs with fresh mind. I was just learning about crypto. And I was like, oh, ICOs, here's how they work. And here's the ones we should invest in. Here's the ones we shouldn't. And here's why Avalanche is more interesting than this other thing. And to them, they were just like, this is so crazy. This is not the way you do it. What about the way Monero did it or the way that Zcash did it? This is a cleaner structure and da, da, da. And I was like, who cares? Why are you so fixated on this? And I realized that that was me. I just passed the baton of, okay, I'm now past my prime. I'm now at the point where I need to rely on the inside of people who get it. And I realized that's always going to be true. Crypto is always this moving target. And you have to very quickly identify the stuff that you're good at and the stuff that you've aged out of. We have to defer to people who are closer to it than you are. There's a follow that. How do you create a culture that is going to move and take that risk space? I'm curious now, looking back, how much was young Hasib wrong and Naval, the more senior statesman, whoever was deciding, versus they had missed it and aged out of it? And then now that you're on the other seat, the senior statesman with the younger people, how do you create a culture that's moving at that risk space? How much of it was you actually were just pushing too hard and you had your foot on the accelerator versus you want your firm to always have your foot on that accelerator? It's different with hedge funds versus venture. The answer usually is that the mistakes you make in venture that really count are almost never positive mistakes. They're almost always negative mistakes. By which I mean, the things that you really regret in venture are very seldom that we made this investment and it didn't work out. The mistakes are almost always, we saw this thing and we didn't invest. It ended up becoming 100x. In venture, you have capped downside and unlimited upside. It's truly these exponential parabolic returns, in which case the only thing that matters is what you miss. When you look back on a portfolio, you will never tell yourself, man, I really shouldn't have made that one investment. That's not why that venture sucks. The reason the venture sucks is that you didn't catch the big thing that mattered. It's the nose you said. And so that's why being too aggressive is almost never the problem. The problem almost always is that you didn't open your aperture enough to really be able to see the opportunity in a place where you thought yourself out of a deal. There are deeper problems, such as you identified the deal and you lost it. Those are the ones where, okay, now the problem is organization building. The problem is actually being able to deliver value to entrepreneurs, being able to build a brand. Those things, if you at least identify what you should be in and you lose it, then okay, that's an easier problem to solve in some sense. But the hardest problem to solve is we saw it and we passed. We didn't understand why this was so important. The two deals I can point to where you had each of these different mistakes. The first one was OpenSea. OpenSea Series A was worth 100 million. At the top of the market, they were worth 11 billion today. It's probably one to two. I don't know. It depends on who you ask what OpenSea is worth today. But their Series A was priced at 100 million. It was one of those deals that everybody knew that OpenSea was going to win. It had just become clear. Basically, the fact it winner at that time, Nifty Gateway, which was run by Gemini, was just starting to have their market share on the verge of getting overtaken by OpenSea. And OpenSea was the one that was open and that was permissionless and that all the newest collections started getting listed on because it was permissionless to list. And everyone realized that they were going to win. So Andreessen, Paradigm, us, Polish, everybody was like, let's get our money in OpenSea. Andreessen won it because they had all these resources. They had all this culture. You got the celebrities in, they got these guys in and they have the cloud and the gravitas that 
when you're going head to head, they're the guys to beat. They're the number one brand in crypto. And so that was a case where, okay, you lost fair and square, you saw the deal, you couldn't win it, level up, go to the gym, build your muscles and try again next time. Okay, very clear, honest lesson. The second deal was the opposite. It was Series A of Uniswap. Uniswap at that time was valued, I think it was 100 mil, 150 mil, something like that, token valuation. Today, Uniswap is worth, what, 8 mil, something like that. Actually, Uniswap really wanted us because we had a reputation for being early investors in DeFi. We invested early in MakerDAO and Compound, and we'd written a lot, and we thought a lot in public about these things. And the Uniswap team really respected us and respected the work that we'd done, and they wanted us in their corner. They very earnestly pitched us. We had a very strong back and forth, but we just were not convinced that Uniswap would work. We thought the AMM model was wrong. We thought that it was inefficient. We thought that there was going to be too much slippage. We thought that they were mostly trading shit coins. We thought that they couldn't really break into the majors. Is it so funny that everything you just said is actually true, but it still worked? Like nothing you said was wrong. Exactly right. Everything that we said in our analysis, in that memo, everything was right and it didn't matter. That was not the reason why Uniswap worked or didn't work was because it traded shit coins or it had a lot of slippage or blah, 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 blah. It was a huge lesson for me. The day that the Uniswap token launched and we saw that it was 70x for the investors in the Series A, that was probably one of the most teachable moments of my career as an investor was seeing the Uniswap launch and and realizing all the things that we had fucked up in that deal, the things that we didn't understand. And it was the only thing that mattered. All the stuff that we invested in that was dog shit, and we invested in a lot of bad startups, and obviously the startups on average fail, so it's not that weird to have a portfolio of things that are failing. I don't regret any of them. I don't regret any deal that we did that wasn't successful. The things that I regret overwhelmingly are the things that we didn't do. Does that lead to this culture of not second guessing? Because I know you can't make every investment. So on top of that, you're in a business where you probably say no a lot more than you say yes. And so how do you think about portfolio sizing or the opposite of having an investment, making a portfolio? And then I don't know, maybe this is young Hasib, but we're now older Hasib wanted to make that big check investment that you didn't put enough chips on the table. Yeah. That's something we've gotten a lot better at as a firm is being able to make high conviction bets and write larger checks when we really have that conviction. The answer is that it's something that I still constantly worry about is, are we too critical? Are we too deferential to good analysis instead of being able to really open your imagination and imagine what happens? Okay, yes, there are these problems. Yes, you're probably right that this thing and that thing are not necessarily going to work. But what happens if it does work? How big will this thing be if it is successful? A lot of, honestly, what the Uniswap deal taught me is the importance of pulling back a little bit from a deal and just squinting in the sense of lowering your resolution at which you see what is currently the thing in front of you and being able to allow yourself a little bit to imagine what it could be. And if they're right, if this market is real, if all these things work, what is this thing that's looking at you right now? What would it look like if Uniswap did work and if it did end up taking over all of DeFi trading? It's a question that I think you constantly have to force yourself to ask more and more. Now, there are a lot of bad investors who ask themselves that about everything. And so they say, oh, what happened if the metaverse worked? Oh, great. Let's put a bunch of money in the metaverse. You do have to retain your skepticism and your discernment because of the fact that, like you said, most things don't work and you can't just put your money into anybody who talks a big game. And so it's always a balance. You have to levy your intelligence and your judgment, but you also have to be not so married to your theory of the case. You have to let in some flexibility to maybe I'm wrong. And to give some credibility to, well, this founder has been executing. They've been getting shit done. They have some new ideas. And if I had to say the one biggest thing that I've learned to add more weight to in my judgment of deals 
is if the founder is doing something genuinely new, even if I think it's not going to work, even if I'm sure it's not going to work, even if I'm sure that messing this stuff up and their fundamental mistakes that they're making in strategy or execution, if they're doing something fundamentally new, that really, really tips me more in this, towards the scales of investing. What are some other things when you analyze founders, think that we've come back to the Naval's view of judgment and you? And there's lots of stories about how venture capitalists are like, look, I think it's a horrible idea, but I'm not these two people that brought it to me. I just can't not bet against them. I just want to see what they do. Are there other things that when you size up founders, things that you've either increased weights, this idea of it's just so crazy and new, I'm in. And are there other areas that over time in your experience, you start to decrease things that you used to value that no longer feel as important? When I first started investing, I really valued credentials a lot more than I do now. This person worked at Goldman. I mean, because I had this insecurity that I didn't have those things. And I assumed that the people who did must be fundamentally better or more experienced or whatever. And I learned it pretty quickly that that is a horrible predictor of who ends up becoming successful in startups and who doesn't. And in some ways, it becomes an anti-pattern the more that people harp on their credentials. So that was one learning that I had very quickly was that credentialism in particular, when somebody is pointing to their credentials as the reason why they're investable, that's usually a huge anti-pattern. One thing I've learned over time is that crypto-native founders, meaning founders who are very deeply entrenched in the crypto universe, vastly outperform non-crypto-native founders in this industry. And it's true across the board, even when it comes to non-protocol investments. It just tends to be the case that when you see these traditional successful founder types who've come their way into crypto, they just do not outperform the crazy schizo glued to their computer crypto types. There are certainly some of them. If somebody's launching Bitwise, for example, okay, they should probably be buttoned up and pretty traditional and have those kinds of blue chip relationships. But thinking about someone like Monad, you talked to Keone on the podcast. Keone is a perfect example of the kind of founder who I love to back, who obviously he has a background in TradFi, you know, trading a jump and then doing research, but he's kind of a crazy crypto guy at this point. That is exactly the DNA that allows you to really push the vanguard of what's happening in crypto and come up with genuinely new ideas that the market really wants, that the crypto community really wants. It solves deep problems in the industry. That's the kind of thing I've learned to upweight more and more over time through my experience of investing. I had Keone on really early. I was blown away by his intelligence. And he's a great example. He actually has credentials. He never mentions them or they don't come up, but he clearly has the brilliance. And I can see that play. I can see why what he's building is going to be amazing. And the point you made, it's solving a problem inside crypto. We're talking like base layer stuff that would fly over 90% of people's heads. And he does a good job of explaining it. That being said, I think one of the critiques of the industry and a lot of the investments has been that the consumer adoption, product market fit, stuff that when are we going to get to a place where you have MBA top shot and to you, maybe it was silly, but for other people it was an eye-opening moment of like, people are selling collector cards and they're supposed to have one in a billion chance or whatever. And then one person will bounce a pack and all 200 of the rarest cards in that box because of a mistake. There's all this like kind of corruption. You're like, oh, digital cards would be so much more fair. That's just an example to me of when NBA Top Shot came out. It seemed like a product that fit for a while or it got people. And I think about on that side of the spectrum and then Keone so far over on this other side. Talk to me a little bit more about those because I'm curious if we're just not ready for that type of stuff. Too much stuff has to be built before we get there. Or where have you seen success on the more consumer facing side? I've mixed feelings about crypto consumer, or I say complicated feelings. The first thing is that a lot of people look at crypto and they ask the question, okay, 
the tokens go up and down and maybe you can do some DeFi stuff and that's cool. But when are we going to see billions of users on blockchains? To my mind, at least as an investor, it's the wrong question to ask. Crypto does not need to be consumer for it to be extremely valuable and to solve problems on a very large scale. And I think what people are doing, I think they're making a bit of a category mistake when they frame blockchain in that way. Because they're thinking about crypto like tech companies. Most tech companies are consumer facing. Facebook and Google and whatever, their scale and their values of business is in terms of MAUs and DAUs. But of course, these are businesses that monetize billions of users for each very small amounts of money. So they monetize, you know, all the users who use Google, they're worth a few bucks if they're in a first world, if they're in emerging markets, maybe 20 cents. That is not the way blockchains work. Blockchains are fundamentally financial in nature. So they're more like banks than they are like tech companies in the sense that if I told you that there was a bank that had 50,000 customers, that is not enough information for you to know, is that bank some community bank in Wichita or is that Goldman Sachs? And the value that bank is creating and that it can capture is very, very different because the work of banking is not different if there's three more zeros on the end. It's the same math. You just keep the zeros. It's the exact same thing is true for blockchains. Blockchains are fundamentally and first and foremost, financial substrates. They were invented for money. Bitcoin was about money. Ethereum was about contracts over money. If you look at ICOs, it's about fundraising, capital formation, that's about money. If you look at DeFi, that's all about money. If you look at NFTs, these are non-fungible forms of money. Everything that is really taken off in crypto has been fundamentally about the permissionless and open transfer of money and financial assets. Now, there's a lot of other stuff that people think, oh, well, now that you have that, what else can you do? Maybe you can trade traditional assets on blockchain. Maybe you can add games and games can have money and this thing and that thing, blah, blah, blah. Those are cool and those are fine and we should try those. Maybe they'll work at scale. Maybe they won't. One way or another, the main thing is what happens with this parallel system of money. Everything that's been proposed otherwise has mostly been, in my view, proposed by consultants and bankers and blog posts by VCs and the stuff that's really worked in crypto has all been bottoms up. It's all been, this is what people are using it for. And oh, isn't that interesting? People are using DeFi. Oh, isn't that interesting? People use Bitcoin as remittances. Oh, I guess remittances are a thing. Everything that's really worked in crypto, the crypto usage and consumers have shown us what they want. Rather than us saying, wouldn't it be great if there was a video game and you could move your sword around from game to game? It's like, okay, maybe, but is that what people are showing you they want? And as the crypto cycles go, there's always new stories that people want to tell about, oh, crypto is going to be used for this, it's going to be used for that. And maybe it will, and I don't know. Obviously, there's people like Deloitte and McKinsey who have very vested interest in telling you blockchain will be used for fucking everything. I'm skeptical of that story. And so far, it's obviously not come true. But the core of it is that, yes, blockchains need to scale so that you can get more and more people around the world to use blockchains at low prices. And we're part of the way there. I think we could probably support maybe 20, 30 million people globally or daily actors across all the blockchains that we use. We need to get another order of magnitude in there over the next five years. I think it's possible. I think it's doable. It's obviously not going to be all on Ethereum. It's going to be strewn across a lot of different blockchains and different marketplaces. But to me, that is obviously the first and foremost consumer application of crypto. If there's one thing everyone needs, it's money. It's financial infrastructure. If they also have games, if they also have trading cards, awesome. I'm very glad to hear that. But if they don't, I'm not losing any sleep over it in the sense that I think most of the value that blocks it, is there a bigger TAM than money? I don't think so. The stuff that they can figure out with gaming and with culture is a cherry on top. The main course 
to me is always first and foremost about money. Yeah, I think that's an excellent reframing, see, because I think it's used as a constraint. I need to see this. And when you talk to consumer VCs, it's always hard if you're building enterprise or technical stuff because they just don't get it. Everyone wants apps or iPhone. That's the way it's been trained. And although there's positives to that, because how many people understand the monetary banking system? How many people have had to start up a company and tried to deal with international payments with 50 countries like you did at Airbnb or understand what it means to settle a treasury bill overnight and what repo is versus money markets or like all that piping stuff. You might fall into that world because of your career and just be geeked out and want to learn about it. But it's not something that's apparent. And because of that, even though the systems are 70 years old, there's layers on top of it, like credit card companies and banking and payroll and processing that make the average person, which is what it's meant to do, right? Abstracted away from us. And maybe that's one of the big misses that the industry went down was it wasn't that you didn't understand NFTs. You did. It's just, who cares? We're not going to put tops trading cards on the NASDAQ. Sure. If we get to a place where we're doing real world assets, that's interesting. And maybe you get your cards too, but you kind of missed the point of that infrastructure. And why that's really interesting to me, I guess, is for you that puts you in a unique position because understand that layer is hard. People don't appreciate it. Investing in it is not consumer facing. Maybe you're going to lose the OpenSea deal, but whoever is it as potential Visa or MasterCard or Goldman Sachs, I doubt you're going to miss. We'll see. I don't take anything for granted in this industry. And the thing that you have to be constantly afraid of, or at least I will say the thing that I'm constantly afraid of, is losing your edge. Because I've seen it happen to so many people before me. Literally, the genesis of my career, the reason why I got into crypto and got into investing in crypto, I should say, is because Naval felt that the other people on the team were losing their edge. And that's why he brought me in. And I want to make damn sure that I'm not going to be a repeat of that story, which requires me to be extremely vigilant, extremely attentive to what am I wrong about? What am I holding on to old ideas about? I'm so sure that, oh, NFTs or this thing or that thing are not going to be real. But if they are, I'd better figure it out as soon as I possibly can, because I do not want to get left behind if the world changes and I don't notice. Only the paranoid can survive. You've got big shoes to live up to, but I think you're doing a good job. This has been a lot of fun. We end these podcasts with our question about the cycle. So where do you think we are in the crypto cycle? I think right now we're entering into a renewed phase of optimism. After the Bitcoin ETF, I think markets are already looking forward now to an Ether ETF. You've got interest rates projected to come down, more consumer optimism across the world. You've got China you know, doing stimulus. You've got US consumers actually looking pretty strong. I think it's going to be a very good year for crypto. That said, despite the fact that prices have done very well, retail is not really here yet. So the ETF is an institutional story for retail. You can see, I think the easiest barometer for retail is just go look on the app store and see where's Coinbase. In 2021, Coinbase was the number one finance app for days and days on end. Today, it's number 20. So we're still a ways away from retail waking up. And if and when they do, I think you're going to see some real craziness in the markets again and some new wacky ideas that I'm going to have trouble wrapping my head around. I'm excited to hear about them. Hasib, this has been a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.